You know, when Jesus was asked, of all the commandments that God gave us, which one is the greatest? Which one is the most important, right? Which one should we focus on more than all the others? When asked that question, Jesus replied, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, Matthew 22. 37 and 38, and what Jesus was describing there is nothing less than radical devotion to God, living a life that is undistracted by other things, even, uh, even other priorities, not allowing anything else in our lives to come before him. It's a life that is chiefly focused on God above everything else. That means giving him more attention than we give to anyone or anything else, including ourselves. That means giving more of our resources to him than we give to anyone or anything else, including ourselves. It means finding more fulfillment, more satisfaction in him than we do in anyone or anything else, including ourselves, right? That's radical devotion. It's loving Christ with all of your heart and all of your soul and all of your mind. And I think, uh, I think intellectually at least, we get that because we, we read about it in the Bible and of course we talk about it in church. But honestly, how many Christians do you know personally uh, who you would say with confidence actually live their lives with a radical devotion to Christ? And, and when you do start naming those people you know who live that way, would you say that they represent the vast majority of professing believers that you are acquainted with, or are they the exception to the rule? Because in our culture, uh, it has been historically easy, it still is very easy to profess to being a Christian with little to no actual devotion to Jesus Christ in our lives, let alone a radical devotion to him, as opposed to other cultures, of course, where you can be killed for nothing more than simply professing faith in Christ, right? And so as a result, uh, there's a multitude of people in our society today who adhere to the Christian faith to one degree or another, but treat the actual level of devotion to which they follow Christ as if that is a personal choice. Like it's okay to choose how devoted we're actually going to be when it comes to following him. But the problem with that is Jesus didn't say, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first suggestion. No. He said this is the great and first commandment. So God has commanded each one of us to be radically devoted to him. In fact, it is not only a command by God, but Jesus said it's the first and greatest command of them all. And yet I honestly, uh, honestly, I have a hard time believing that being radically devoted to Christ is the number one priority today for a lot of people who profess to be followers of Christ. And by the way, if that statement is convicting to you, uh, just know that it is very convicting to me as well. Because the truth of the matter is, it is so easy in this country, which I'm profoundly thankful for. I'm so grateful for the freedom and the prosperity that we have here. I, I am. But it is 
staggeringly easy in our society to live an entire lifetime believing that you can serve material prosperity and serve personal gratification and and serve ego and serve pride and serve self-interest and still serve God. But Jesus cleared that up a long time ago when he said no one can serve two masters. For he, either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. Matthew 6, 24. You see, we, we really have to stop treating the Christian faith as if it is some kind of buffet line where we get to you know, pick and choose the parts we like and walk right past the parts that we don't, all the while believing that doing so has no effect on our lives or the lives of others. Because the truth is nothing will positively affect the lives of those around you more than when you decide to radically devote your life to Christ, which means not only uh, receiving Christ, but receiving all that comes along with that. And of course, the opposite is true as well. It's one of the reasons he commands us to be radically devoted to him because we need all that he has for us if we're going to be all that we can be for him and for others, which means we cannot be selective when it comes to our devotion to him. We're either all in or we're not in at all. So So when we choose to follow Christ, we choose everything that comes along with that while at the same time making those hard decisions every day to ruthlessly reject every single thing in our lives that draws our focus and affection away from Christ. It's a radical way to live your life to be sure. And it is also the reason that few choose to actually live that way, but that's what radical devotion looks like. Just to be honest, sometimes it's hard, okay? Sometimes it is uncomfortable. Sometimes it goes against everything that our flesh is longing for, but it is the only way to live the kind of life that you are truly capable of living, and it is the only way to receive everything from God that he wants to give you, and it is the only way to truly please him by obeying that first and greatest commandment to be radically devoted to Christ. And as we'll see in our story today, as we continue our sermon series, working our way through the book of Joshua, this was a lesson that God's people had to learn the hard way, especially in the early stages of their conquest through Canaan. So we're going to pick up the story right where we left off last week. This is right after the Israelites conquered the city of Jericho by the supernatural working of God on their behalf. It was a stunning victory and one that no doubt gave the people of God great confidence that he was on their side and that he intended on prospering them as they obediently trusted his guidance into the promised land. So let's pick up the story at chapter 7 and we'll begin by reading verse 1. But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things, for Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things. And the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. Okay, first of all, in order to really fully appreciate the gravity of what is happening here, we have to revisit the previous chapter where God's instructions are explicit to the people of Israel uh, in verses 17 and 18 that when they take Jericho by storm 
everything and everyone in the city are to be devoted, he says, to destruction, save uh, Rahab and her family. And then the silver, gold, and bronze uh, and iron were to be put into the treasury of the Lord. So if you go back there, Joshua very clearly instructs the people. He says, the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But you keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing of destruction and bring trouble upon it. But all silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. So uh, obviously they're not permitted to take any of the spoils of war, not one single item for themselves personally, which means other than one family, everything was to be destroyed or devoted to destruction as Joshua puts it in verse 18. Okay, in, uh, in modern military terms, this is eliminating the enemy with extreme prejudice. In Joshua's day, it was called the Karim principle, which was very familiar to the Hebrew people. When, when Joshua talks about the devoted things, he's using the ancient Hebrew word Karim, which we don't, uh, to be honest, really have a great equivalent for in our modern English language, but basically when it's used as a noun, it referred to something that was set apart as sacred property. And when used in its verb form, as it is in chapter 6, verse 18, it describes a special action of setting something apart permanently as the property of God alone, either for service or for destruction. And then when entire cities or entire populations were placed under Karim, that usually involved the complete annihilation of that city and its people, uh, which wasn't unique, by the way, to the Israelites in, um, in the Mesha steel or the Moabite stone, uh, which is located in modern-day Jordan. We have ninth-century inscriptions that describe King Mesha of Moab capturing Israelite cities and putting them under Karim, under total destruction in order to honor the Moabite god Chemosh. Okay, the, the point is, this was a principle, this principle of Karim uh, was widely understood in the ancient Near East by many people so that this order by God through Joshua to the Israelites would have been very clearly understood, which means this action by Achan, who violated the Karim principle, was not simply some kind of misunderstanding or a little white lie or a slip-up on his part, he knew exactly what he was doing. He understood well the gravity of his decision that day when he took some of the devoted things, the carom, for himself, which is what makes his sin so egregious, so horrible. Because instead of eliminating everything from his life that could separate himself from God, he actually cherished those things as his own. You understand God applying Karim to this city had nothing to do with God wanting to deprive his people of nice things or of blessings. On the contrary, it had everything to do with God wanting to protect them from anything that could turn their focus or turn their affections away from him. In other words, anything that demands your highest devotion apart from God must be completely eliminated from your life. 
It's, it's not removing certain things, uh, by the way, from our lives so that we can be good people. You understand that? It's not about being good people. That's dead religion. No, we remove certain things from our lives because they steal our affections. They demand our focus. They turn our gaze away from Jesus Christ. And so God says, eliminate those things from your lives because I want to be as close to you as possible, which means loving me with all of your heart and all of your soul and all of your mind. But the only way you can do that is by being radically devoted to me. Okay, God's desire is that nothing come between him and his people because of how much he loves us. But he also gave us a free will so that we're only ever as devoted to him as we want to be. Okay, the fact is being radically devoted to Christ is a daily decision. It's, it's not about saying a prayer uh, one time in your life at church in an altar and then there's nothing else left for us to do. No, radical devotion to Christ is about making decisions every single day that affect your relationship with him. So it's not about, uh, it's not about how good or bad you want to be. It's about how close to him you want to be. That's why we eliminate certain things from our lives. The apostle Paul said all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. 1 Corinthians 10, 23, okay? Our salvation by God is fixed. Our proximity to God is fluid. Right? You cannot be more saved or less saved. Right? You're either born again or you're not. But your closeness to God is not a fixed thing. Hebrews 10, 19 through 22 says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a high priest, a great priest over the house of God, in other words, since we've been saved by Jesus Christ, verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. James, the brother of Jesus, in James 4, 8 said, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Right? Obviously, drawing close to God is a choice that we have to make. David wrote, oh God, you are my God. Earnestly, I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Psalm 63, 1. This is the very picture of a man who radically devoted his life to God by pursuing closeness to God. And that was a daily choice for him, just as it is for us, just as it was for Achan. Right? People think that Achan's sin was that he violated the Eighth Commandment. You shall not steal. Now, actually, Achan's greatest sin was that he violated the First Commandment. He failed to put God before everything else in his life. He chose to set his affections on other things. And just, just to put it into perspective today, we know from verse 21 that Achan took five pounds of silver and a pound and a quarter of gold along with a fancy cloak. Just the gold and silver alone represent what an average worker at the time would have earned in a lifetime. Right? Surely we can understand what he was uh, thinking. I know God wants all of my devotion, but if I just give in this one time, my family will be taken care of for life. 
And so in that moment, Achan loved what he could take from this world more than he loved God. See, he broke the first and greatest commandment, and yet when we do that, when we, when we set our affections on earthly things, we're assuming that we can gain enough from this world to be satisfied by it. We're assuming that what this world offers us apart from God is somehow adequate for this life. Hey, listen to me. It will never be adequate. It will never be enough. Soren Kierkegaard, one of my favorite scholars, a 19th century Danish philosopher and theologian, said it this way, the sense of human adequacy is the primary bar barrier to genuine faith. Whether expressed as confidence in science, moral progress, or military might, the human feeling of self-reliance distances a person from his or her creator. You see, there's nothing inherently within us or in this world that will ever be adequate to meet our needs or satisfy our deepest longings because only Jesus Christ can do that. Origen, the second century Greek scholar and theologian, said that the devoted things in Joshua 6.18, the things that Achan took, represent the affairs of this present world. And then he points us to Romans 12.2, which Mary Beth read, do not be conformed to this world. Okay, guys, do you understand? There is nothing... Nothing, there is, there is nothing in this world that will ever be adequate for us apart from Jesus Christ. Even an entire lifetime of accumulation and achievement cannot satisfy like one moment in the presence of Jesus Christ. And so we're left to choose. Every single day, we're left to choose. Will I devote myself today to Christ or will I devote myself to other things? Will I look for my deepest satisfaction in him or in the pursuits of this world? Will I eliminate with extreme prejudice everything in my life that stands between me and a closer relationship with him? Or will I allow a portion of all of that to remain? Because radical devotion, it is not a prayer said in an altar at a church. It is a decision that we make day after day after day. Let's keep reading verses two through nine. Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth-Avon, east of Bethel, and said to them, go up and spy out the land. And the men went up and spied out Ai, and they returned to Joshua and said to him, do not have all the people go up, but let about two or 3,000 men go up and attack Ai. Do not make the whole people go up or toil up there, for they are few. So about 3,000 men went up from there from the people, and they fled before the men of Ai. The men of Ai killed about 36 of their men and chased them before the gate as far as Shabarim and struck them at the descent. The hearts of the people melted and became as water. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until the evening. He and the elders of Israel... And they put dust on their heads, and Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all to give us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? Would that we had been content to dwell beyond the Jordan? O Lord, what can I say? 
when Israel has turned their backs before their enemies. For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it and will surround us and cut off our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? So the Israelites have just conquered Jericho, but of course there's a long way to go before all of Canaan is possessed by God's people. And having the great military mind that Joshua has, he knows that he needs a more strategic position than the Jordan Valley to launch his military offensives from. And so he sets his sights on the city of Ai. It's known today as Etel. It's in the, uh, the West Bank or the hill country uh, because that location would provide a much more secure base for the Israelites because it could not be reached by uh, either Egyptian or Canaanite chariots because it was really rugged, mountainous terrain. And, and there were two routes from Jericho that ran west, parallel to one another, into the hill country, with the northern route passing right through Etel, or Ai, which is why Joshua said to his men in verse 2, go up and spy out the land. In other words, take the northern route to Ai and figure out how many men we need to send there to conquer that city. And keep in mind, at this point, Joshua has no idea that Achan has taken some of the carom, the devoted things, and kept them for himself. He has no idea that God's anger is burning against them. And so as far as Joshua is aware, they're good to go in terms of continuing their military conquest of Canaan, which also tells us something about Joshua's disposition toward God at this point. Because up to this point, he's been consulting God on a daily basis before he makes a move. And yet here, concerning this coming invasion of Ai, Joshua makes decisions and takes actions without the guidance of God, obviously, because if he had met with God first, he would have known that God was angry with them and would never have attempted to take the city without God's blessing and leading, okay? It goes back to the need for us to devote ourselves to God every single day. We cannot expect a commitment that we made to God yesterday to carry us through today. I'm not talking about salvation, by the way. I'm talking about the guidance and wisdom and blessing that we need from God and receive from God every single day as we devote ourselves to him every single day. Joshua, probably basking in the overwhelming victory at Jericho, skips this most important step and attacks the city of Ai based on the recommendation of his spies rather than the recommendation of his God and the results are disastrous. They not only fail to take the city, but about three dozen Israelites are killed. The entire military force has to retreat, bolstering the confidence of their enemies because for them, Israel is no longer invincible. And understandably, Joshua is devastated. After everything they've been through to get to this point, it seemed that nothing could stop them, and indeed, nothing could save one thing, themselves. And so Joshua and his elders do the only thing they know to do. They fall down and begin to mourn and cry out to God in complete bewilderment at this decisive loss to a much smaller and much weaker uh, city than Jericho, which is also a lesson for us uh, as well when we do not know why certain things are happening in our lives and we, we don't know what to do in circumstances that we're facing, the answer is always turn to God 
devote your life to him anew, even if you don't understand what's happening. Uh, there's a great author, Dale Ralph Davis, said it like this. There are times when the people of God today stand in solidarity with Joshua's Israel. That is, there are periods in which confusion strikes and we haven't any idea what God is about. We have no recourse but Joshua's anguished prayer to a mystifying God pleading both our danger and his honor. That's exactly what Joshua is doing here. And so God responds, as we'll see. Let's keep reading verses 10 through 15. The Lord said to Joshua, get up. Why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. They've transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They've taken some of the devoted things. They've stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies because they have become devoted for destruction. I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. Get up, consecrate the people and say, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, there are devoted things in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the devoted things from among you. In the morning, therefore, you shall be brought near by your tribes, and the tribe that the Lord takes by lot shall come near by clans, and the clan that the Lord takes shall come near by households, and the household that the Lord takes shall come near man by man, and he who is taken with the devoted things shall be burned with fire, he and all that he has, because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord, and because he has done an outrageous thing in Israel." Gee, so God drops a bomb on Joshua that someone among them has taken some of the devoted things in direct rebellion to the word of God. And he gives Joshua very specific instructions in order to determine who the offending person is, which is interesting because obviously God could have just told Joshua who it was, right? But again, this will be a test of Joshua's devotion to God to slow him down so that he takes the time after the failed attack on AI, the time that he should have taken before he attacked AI to follow God's leading. It's also of the utmost significance to point out here the way that God describes the guilty party in this passage. Verses 11 and 12, God says, Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies because they have become devoted for destruction. You see, in addition to the devastating loss at AI, it is the entire nation of Israel, all of God's people who are now affected by the sin of one member. And so God says, get up, consecrate the people and say, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow for thus says the Lord God of Israel, there are devoted things in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the devoted things from among you. You see, being radically devoted to Christ affects everyone around you. Right? The, the, the church is only as strong uh, in Christ as it is devoted to Christ. 
And yet the devotion of each one of us individually affects all of the others. Uh, As a parent, if your child decides to begin living contrary to the way you've raised them, they begin to rebel against you and your rules and your authority, it affects the entire family, doesn't it? Likewise, if a parent goes off the the deep end and stops being the leader and role model and mentor that they should be to their spouse or their children, what happens? The entire family is affected. You understand it's the same thing with the church. Your brothers and sisters in Christ are affected by the degree to which your life is devoted to Christ, which is precisely why there's so much written in Scripture about how we, those within the church, are supposed to hold one another accountable. You understand, we're not to hold the world accountable, unbelievers. We're just supposed to love the world the way Christ loved the world. And of course, we're supposed to love the church, each other, just as Christ loved the church, which includes the way he held those early followers, which was really the early iteration of the church, how he held them accountable. Because what we do or do not do in terms of how devoted we are to him affects everyone else in the body. We'll talk about what that looks like in practical terms in a few moments, but the point for now is this. We have to stop pretending in this comfortable modern church culture that we're all living in today. We really have to stop pretending that how I live my life spiritually is a private matter, a personal choice that is no one else's business as long as it isn't hurting anyone else. Because the fact is, it is hurting everyone else when you live your life less than fully devoted to Christ. Yet I can't tell you how many people over the years who were professing Christians when I've asked them about their spiritual life have responded to me with something along the lines of, well, you know, that's honestly a personal matter for me. Well, guess what? Your spiritual life is a personal matter for me too. Because whether you like it or not, we're both members of the same family, the same body, according to Scripture, which means if one member is not functioning as they were intended to, if they're not pulling their weight spiritually, it affects the entire body. It affects the whole family. The Apostle Paul said, speaking the truth in love, that's the key, we're to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Okay? The only way we grow, the only way we're built up in love, the only way we work properly is when each of us is devoted to Christ when each of us is willing to speak the truth to one another in love, which is so profoundly important and it should be profoundly important to each one of us that when one among us is living in direct disobedience to the word of God, we love each other so much that we're willing to go to that person after making sure we've taken the plank out of our own eye and then say, hey, My friend, if I didn't care about you or about this family that we both belong to, then I wouldn't even bring this up. But the fact is, I do care. And I love you deeply. So let me be honest with you. You're screwing up. You're being unfaithful to God. 
You're being unfaithful to us. You're being unfaithful to yourself. By the way, I totally understand that because I've done it myself. So how about you let me walk this road with you till we get you back to where you need to be, till we get you back to where we need you to be as a family, right? Because being radically devoted to Christ, it affects everyone around you and we'll only be as strong, we'll only ever be as strong as each one of us is devoted. Let's keep reading. Verses 16 through 21. So Joshua rose early in the morning and brought Israel near tribe by tribe and the tribe of Judah was taken. And he brought near the clans of Judah and the clan of the Zerahites was taken. He brought near the clan of the Zerahites man by man and Zabdi was taken. And he brought near his household man by man and Achan the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah of the tribe of Judah was taken. Then Joshua said to Achan, my son, give glory to the Lord God of Israel and give praise to him. And tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. And Achan answered Joshua, truly, I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel. And this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, then I coveted them and took them. And see, they're hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. So Joshua follows God's instructions and Achan is revealed as the one who took the devoted things. Interestingly, uh, in verse 21, when Achan says, when I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels and then I coveted them and took them. If you compare that verse with Eve's temptation in the Garden of Eden back in Genesis 3, 6, where it says, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. If you, if you put those two passages side by side and read them in the ancient Hebrew, the same words are used to describe the moment when Achan and Eve both saw something beautiful and desired to have it and took it for themselves. Why? Because it was the exact same sin. It was devoting themselves to something in that moment of temptation more than they were devoted to God himself. They broke that first and great commandment. And in both cases, I think it's safe to say that everyone else around them was affected by their decision to devote themselves to something other than God. Let's finish the story. Verse 22 to the end of the chapter. So Joshua sent messengers, and they ran to the tent, and behold, it was hidden in his tent with the silver underneath. And they took them out of the tent and brought them to Joshua and to all the people of Israel. And they laid them down before the Lord, and Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, and the silver and the cloak and the bar of gold, and his sons and daughters and his oxen and donkeys and sheep and his tent and all that he had. And they brought them up to the valley of Achor. And Joshua said, why did you bring trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today. And all Israel stoned him with stones. They burned them with fire and stoned them with stones. And they raised over him a great heap of stones that remains to this day. And then the Lord turned from his burning anger. Therefore, to this day, the name of that place is called the Valley of Achor. And interestingly, if you read the Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament, you'll find that Achan's name is spelled with an R instead of an N to identify him with this place. Of course, this is the part of the story that we don't like to read 
because it doesn't end the way we would like for it to, right? We'd rather see Achan repent and be restored to God and to the people, but we first have to recognize, of course, uh, this was before Jesus Christ satisfied the wrath of God for our sins. So this is under the old covenant, but also by taking the things devoted for destruction into his heart and into his own home, Achan and all that he has have come into union with the devoted things. In other words, Achan and his family and belongings have themselves now become Kerem. They have become the very things that were devoted for destruction. It's worth noting here that some scholars believe uh, there's strong evidence that Achan's family was colluding with him in covering up the devoted things based on their uh, living arrangements and customs at the time. We don't have time to go through all of that today, uh, but in the end that may be true because God says to Joshua back in verse 12, I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you, which means Joshua would have only had to have destroyed Achan if he was the only devoted thing, the only guilty party. But still, still according to our uh, 21st century Western sensibilities, this makes us very uncomfortable, doesn't it? This makes us squirm a little when we read these kinds of passages as it should as it was meant to because of the gravity of what sin does to humanity. It also underscores the radical devotion that God commands from his people, okay? Being radically devoted to Christ means living without compromise. When it comes to living for Christ, there's no room for compromise. There's no room for half-heartedness. There's no room for a middle ground where we continually live our lives somewhere in between devotion to Christ and devotion to ourselves. And yet, look, that is exactly where many Christians live today. They focus a little on Jesus and a lot on themselves. And that kind of compromise, when you, when you compromise your devotion, it only brings division in your own life and in the lives of those around you. Right? Division in a family always boils down to one or more members of that family focusing on themselves instead of on Christ and on each other. Division in relationships in general, it always comes down to someone in that relationship focusing on themselves rather than on Christ or that other person. And division in the church is no different. It always comes down to people who are more focused on themselves than they are committed to, devoted to uh, themselves, their own agenda, than they are to Christ or to the body. I'm telling you, when you compromise on your devotion to Christ, when you focus on yourself in life, in the end, you will always lose more than you gain. Just ask our friend Aiken, right? We focus on ourselves because we want something more for ourselves. But the actual effect in the end is always the opposite. We lose more than we gain in our lives when we're devoted to ourselves because we're breaking the first and greatest commandment. And I'm telling you, there is no greater sin than that. Okay, the truth is, the severity of the judgment on Achan and his family is what indicates the severity of the sin. But we struggle to understand these kinds of passages in part because sin doesn't bother us like it should. 
That's why we're baffled by the stories in the Bible where tens of thousands of people are wholesale put to death. We see it in Exodus 32. We see it in Numbers 25. That's why we have a hard time understanding Jesus when he says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. Sure, that's, that's hyperbole. It is, but it's a pretty shocking and extreme thing to say, isn't it? It's why churches today don't actually practice Paul's teaching when he said, as for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He's self-condemned, Titus 3, 10 and 11. You know, the truth is, if we are confounded by these kinds of passages, it's because we're not confounded by sin. Not the way Jesus was. Not the way the apostles were. You see, because when we become comfortable with compromise, it's hard to understand the consequences. But being radically devoted to Christ means living without compromise. And I'm not talking about being perfect, by the way. I'm talking about being devoted to Christ above every other thing in our lives. And sure, we'll screw that up along the way. We all do. Because we're all very imperfect human beings. But the posture of our daily lives is one of radical devotion to Christ, mistakes and all. And it's not hard to tell, by the way, uh, what you're devoted to. Just look at how you spend your time Look at how you spend your money. Look at what you're focused on throughout life each day. Those are all indicators of where your devotion lies. And look, if you really want your life to be full, if you want to be truly satisfied, full of purpose and contentment, then radically devote yourself to Christ and he will add more to your life than you could ever hope to by focusing on yourself. That's a fact. Okay, Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. He didn't say love the Lord your God with some of your heart, with some of your soul, with some of your mind. No, he said, I want it all. I want all of your devotion, which is a radical way to live your life, to be sure. And it's also the reason few people choose to actually live that way. But that's what radical devotion looks like. Sometimes it's hard. Sometimes it is uncomfortable. Sometimes it goes against everything that our flesh is longing for. But it is the only way to live the kind of life that you're truly capable of living. It is the only way to receive everything from God that he wants to give give you and it is the only way to truly please him by being radically devoted by obeying that first and great commandment and that is a decision that we have to make every single day the choice to follow him above everyone and everything else and when we make that choice we choose every single thing that comes with it and we reject every single thing that doesn't that is what radical devotion looks like. That is what our lives are supposed to look like. In fact, 
That is what you want your life to look like, even if you don't realize it, because I understand devoting yourself to something other than yourself seems counterintuitive to getting the most out of this life. But as it turns out, that is exactly how you get the most out of this life. Radical devotion to Jesus Christ. Let's pray.